District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I have a sit down with Sarah Montalbano, a fellow Young Voices regional leader and contributor who began her tenure as a contributor alongside me and a handful of others last summer. She is currently also a research associate at Alaska Policy Forum, and she just graduated with a BS in computer science and minor in economic and data science from Montana State University. Her work has appeared at Anchorage Daily News, the Wall Street Journal, and Washington Examiner, among many places, and she's going to begin a fellowship with the Wall Street Journal. We had Sarah chat about what is happening in Alaska, what the lower 48 gets wrong about Alaskan perspectives, conservation, environmental policy, and so much more. I think you'll enjoy what she had to say. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? Doing very well. So for those of you who don't know, Sarah is a fellow Young Voices regional leader with me, and we finally got to connect in person during our recent retreat. We have a lot of overlap in some conservation niche areas, and she is a rare Alaska perspective. So we're going to have her talk about Alaska conservation issues, what she's up to. So Sarah, describe your background and some of your affiliations. Yeah, so I am a research associate at Alaska Policy Forum. Uh, I've been doing that for about four years. Um, I will be joining them in the autumn uh, to work full-time on some more education issues. Um, But through APF, I've been given the opportunity to work on a few conservation uh, environmental items, um, not as many as I'd like to because we have, you know, other priorities to work on. Um, yeah, and then this summer I will be a Bob Bartley Fellow with the Wall Street Journal Editorial Board, uh, and I was also contributing and commentating for Young Voices over the past year. I think we started Young Voices around the same time, am I correct with that, or did you start a little earlier? I started last July. Yeah, same class. I started yeah. July too. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, that's, I forgot we were the same class. So that's awesome. We've been able to kind of grow in the program, you know, in our respective areas. <laughs> but talk about, yeah. yeah, some of the things you've written about for Young Voices recently relating to conservation, energy, and environment. Yeah, so my first piece for Young Voices, and it was about the Tongass National Forest because the Biden administration had just Uh, reinstated the roadless rule uh, from 2001, I want to say. And the roadless rule basically prevents, um, you know, certain areas of the forest from having roads built through it, which obviously makes logging difficult. Uh, And that was kind of the point. That was a really heavily researched piece. It's on real clear energy. Um, Yeah. and, And my take on that is, you know, that we should be allowed to, um, as Alaskans develop those resources responsibly. Um, and, and this roadless rule back and forth isn't helping. It isn't making investment easy in the region. Definitely. Yeah, I know a lot of people in the lower 48 like to lecture to Alaskans what they should do, especially in that Tongass rule issue as well. And then a lot of people especially love to lecture you guys about ANWR. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to ANWR and what people may get wrong on that issue? 
Absolutely. Uh, so I want to first say that this is so topical because I just got out of one of my last college classes and he had a lecture about ANWR and said that <laughs> the only reason Alaskans support energy development and ANWR is because if we don't, we don't get our permanent fund dividends. Uh, so that really frustrated me because that's not true. Um, a, a lot of Alaskans, ANWR is an enormous place. Like this place is, you know, larger than most of the national parks put together. Um, and oil development would only be allowed on one specific spot, area of 1002. Uh, it's on the coastal plain and it's like 3% of Anwar. It's not that big. Um, yeah. And so this has been going back and forth for 30, 50 years. It's been just a ridiculously long time. And, and you know, most recently the Biden administration reviewed the leases and Anwar isn't doing leasing, um, I think as of this summer. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of what people misunderstand is that it's going to just destroy the environment in that area. It's going to be awful. Um, but new technologies really make it safer to drill there. It's not going to be as bad for a lot of these places. Um, and hesitancy to drill in Anwar is probably due to all of this back and forth. We have so many, it's so unpredictable. You don't know when your lease is going to be revoked. You don't want to put investment in the area. Um, so I think that's most of the hesitancy we're seeing. And then the fact that if on the, the chance that there was an environmental disaster in Anwar, um, that would be catastrophic PR for whatever oil uh, firm went into the area and actually accepted one of these leases, assuming they could even get to that point. Um, yeah, so that's, I, I think we should be allowed to drill in Anwar. I think it would be, you know, it would, first of all, help our energy security right now. We don't want to necessarily be dependent on foreign oil, um, although it's good in many uh, situations. Um, and, you know, Alaskans, we will, we will be able to get a lot of you know state revenue as well as federal revenue from oil taxes in the area. Um, yeah, there, there's just lots of good reasons and this environmental back and forth, we already have a good understanding of, of the environmental risks. Yeah, and I think because it has been extensively studied for 40, 50 years, I think people know what the potential impact would be. And I think people fail to forget that if you are developing a project, especially an energy project, you have to account for potential environmental risks. It's not like, I think a lot of people have misconceptions about drilling and some of the processes that are involved. They think, well, everything is gonna be adversely impacted. And that's not necessarily true because today, especially every company has a prevailing thought in the back of their mind, like why would we want to make this area worse with our contributions, we want to be safe. We want to make sure there's no faulty errors. There's no, let's say pollution or some devastation. I think people forget like these companies are not malicious much anymore and they're not going to be <laughs> deliberate in their development. They're going to be conscious of the surroundings. And I think a lot of people kind of ignore studies relating to, I think they say like, well, caribou numbers will go down. And I've seen the opposite that actually they respond pretty well to I think it's some of the pipelines there. And I had a guest previously, a hunter, explain to me why that's the case. But a lot of people turn a blind eye to some of the proposals to cut off caribou hunting. That's a whole nother story. 
Um, but they they really focus in on Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That's what ANWR stands for, for those of you who weren't aware. But thank you for giving us an update on that, because I know Alaskans are almost uniformly in support of this. It's just the people from lower 48 come to say, well, no, we know it's better for Alaskans. And Alaskans like you are like, actually, no, we know it's better for us. And like I said, it's, really it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and this is a common problem in conservation where outside influences come into states and say, we know it's better for you and you can't have balanced use and you can't have multiple use, sustained yield management of public lands. People forget that Alaska is what, 97% public lands, especially federally mm-hmm. owned? Yep, tons, just, just most of it. Um, yeah, and I, I think what's important to point out is you can probably name two big industrial accidents. Exxon Valdez, right? That's a big one. Um, And then, you know, the 2006-ish pipeline leak. But can you name a third? I mean, we have a really good industrial safety record. And I think everyone who comes to Alaska to work on these things realizes that, you know, we want to preserve this place. We do our best to you know, even prevent drips of oil from vehicles. Um, you know, it's just there. there's a sense of pride in taking care of this place that is just totally, you know, missed by lower 48ers um, and the media. It, we don't have malicious, you know, actors very much anymore. Talk about the PFD, the Permanent Fund Dividend. A lot of people, let's say if we're talking politics, because some people may not know this, some people on the political left will say that this is like universal basic income. So could you break down for us what the permanent fund dividend is and if it is UBI in any way? Sure. Um, so first of all, Alaska Policy Forum doesn't comment on this. This is my opinion. Um, the permanent fund, I don't think constitutes universal basic income at all. Um, first of all, it is you know, it's interest on the permanent fund, which is collected from oil taxes. Um, And so that fund isn't tapped down, it isn't changing. And we as Alaskans are, you know, entitled or or receive at least um, payments from the interest income. Uh, I find that, First of all, it's just not large enough. In past years, it's been, you know, $1,000 per person, um, which certainly helps some families, but it's not enough. And um, I think there's a lot to say for criticisms of the PFD that, well, people just go out and buy a new snow machine, snowmobiles, whatever. Um, You know, but that's not really a good justification for doing anything about the PFD. Um, Yeah, I, I, I have mixed feelings about the PFD because I feel really like Alaska's oil companies shouldn't be taxed as much as they are. I mean, we have one of the most complicated tax systems for uh, these companies and mining companies that come into the area. Um, but the fact that we are we are taxing them, uh, I think this is one of the more responsible ways to do it by not drawing down the principal balance um, and, and just working off the interest income. Well, the other thing I will say about the PFD before we move on uh, is that it makes Alaska politics really focused on this issue. Uh, It's really hard to get anything else done uh, if you're a legislator um, because your constituents are only worried about the PFD. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah, I've I've heard the tussling back and forth between I don't have a well-informed opinion of it. 
but I know it is very important to Alaskans, especially because given the situation they have with it primarily being a federally land-based state, that's why the program was created. So you can understand why that goes into it. But you have lived in Montana, being an Alaska native, and you also focus on other issues. So what other issues are on your mind that you have focused on with Young Voices or even outside Young Voices conservation-wise? What concerns you as a young person? That's that's tough. I'm I'm worried about how energy development isn't going to keep happening if it keeps being demonized. And that's that's one of the things that gets me is I'm not opposed to clean energy sources, but I know moving away from that is going to be premature and involve a lot of government subsidy to get us into, you know, a, a place where we could actually use, you know, wind, solar, all of these different alternative energies. Um in a sustainable way. Um, yeah, I, I find myself, you know, really worried uh, about those things. Alaska's energy issues are, of course, important to me, but I also am concerned about, you know, the, the fisheries and the forestry and mining and uh, things like that, that are not, you know, so uh, <laughs> the devil horns aren't put on them as much as, um, the oil companies in Alaska, but they are still, you know, having a really hard time uh, complying with all of these regulatory issues. Um, yeah, and and so I would say those are probably my big conservation worries right now. Certainly, we see a reluctance. I mean, they're exhausting the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They refuse to proceed with the nine thousand plus leases that have been approved, and then they continue to blame oil companies. And I think. People don't know, and and back me up on this. I think most of the blame can be attributed to the taxation system because what is it? I think a lot of people shirk the blame to the big oil companies, and there are problems with them because they cave to things like ESG, and they're very weak in many cases. But you look at the tax structure as to who is burdening people more. It looks like the gas tax burdens at the state and federal level, especially burden consumers more. And that explains why we have such high gas prices now and just the refusal to domestically produce and and refine a lot more. And I think they conceded a little bit like, yes, we will allow some development, but they're raising the royalty rates. Like I hate to sound like uh, perplexed here or kind of like frustrated here, but it does seem like it is intentional. I think a lot of people, if you look at the executive orders that they've put out, they said that they want to eventually phase out the oil and gas program. The most recent plan from the Department of Interior said, yeah, our goal is to gradually move away and allow for clean energy production and development on public lands. And they said that one of the factors they'll take into account is raising the royalty rates essentially to make it difficult for oil companies to bid on leases and make it unviable. So if you kind of trace the the footprint and the evidence and on all the different moves, it seems like they do want this. And then President Biden relished over the fact that, yeah, you know, this will, you know, immediately bring about a swift transition. It'll be painful now, but ultimately be good. And that comes off as tone deaf to people outside the Acela Corridor, New York, Los Angeles. I know people probably in Alaska are very peeved about this, about his and comments. They, yeah. There's people still in Alaska who are have wood burning stoves. It's just in a place so cold, uh, we need to have, you know, reliable energy. And a lot of the things that are only reliable enough or oil and gas and and that's that's the thing is because alaska's being 
you know, kind of sidelined into a giant wildlife preserve. And that's cool. We can do a lot with tourism, but it's not going to be enough to sustain the state. Um, Alaska's had net out migration for 10 years. You know, it, it's it's not going to be an attractive place to live uh, for anybody. Yeah. And I think people forget how rugged it is and that a lot of these environmental preservationists love to say, like we've been talking, that they are better stewards instead of those local and closest to the lands. And this seems like a nationwide thing. I've noticed this with kind of the Biden administration, their policies, that they want to make it increasingly public lands access, especially. It sounds counterintuitive, but it can work like this. Those who don't think like them, they don't want them to recreate on public lands. This is why we're seeing efforts with this administration to uh, repeal the opening of national wildlife refuges. A lot of them that do sit in Alaska, I bet would be affected by this. I don't recall if Alaska had uh, under the Trump years, if they had benefited from the expansions. I think they did. I think most areas think of the so. country did. And so they want to negotiate with very, very radical groups to ban public lands access for sportsmen and women, those who fish and hunt. And then they love to lecture to us that, well, it's actually you guys who are destroying public lands access, like, actually, you guys should look in the mirror and see, like, what you're doing. Like, your policies will have ruinous effects on public recreationists. And, and they just don't see it because they live kind of in a, a vacuum. They want to be told, like, our policies are right, despite, like, rising costs for fuel. And it's going to be harder for people to road trip. It's going to be harder for people to access. And I recently went through the uh, timed park entry system for mm -hmm. Arches National Park when I went out west to film some videos there. And, you know, they say that it's supposed to be easier. And while there wasn't like so much crowdedness when we got there, like to wait in line with our time ticket, it, I don't know if it outweighed the benefits to this time system. And I see that system, unfortunately, as a way to keep out the public. And certainly yeah. the, there are concerns about too many people coming and they disrespect kind of the landscape and they don't leave a, a trace or they leave a trace, they don't practice, you know, leaving no trace. But I don't think you have to have such a negative view of the public. I think most people will be respectful of the surroundings. And I've called into question whether or not that time system works because I had to wait and I almost missed some important meetings in Salt Lake City, you know, a few hours away because it's like, oh, and, and also maybe they have to repair the infrastructure uh, with that. That's why we permanently funded, you know, the Land and Water Conservation Fund and the National Park System with the Great American Outdoors Act. So why isn't that money being appropriate? But anyway, that, that's a yeah. lot to talk about. But it seems like they have a lot of mixed messaging about conservation. They seem to be appealing to just one interest group more so mm -hmm. than the wider conservation stakeholder, I would say, interest group or a wider conservation stakeholder relations uh, they seem to give preference, obviously, to their backers who help them get into office, of course. But uh, in your Bartley Fellowship, are you going to be focusing at all on environmental or conservation issues out of curiosity? I don't believe so. The Bartley Fellowship is going to be mostly editing and other editorial board tasks like that. Um, I would love to give some of my input on Alaska issues if any arise. Um, but yeah, it's going to be mostly an editing break. And hopefully I'll return as a better writer um, if I've been editing also. Well, you're an excellent writer, so I don't think you have too much to worry about. But like anything, you can always improve. I always say that too. And Absolutely. through Young Voices, my writing has improved because sometimes I have so many ideas percolating in my mind and I just don't know how to like simplify because I'm like, oh my God, there's so much. And I don't want to do too much of information overload. But then you're like, how do you package it where it's concise 
So we can all benefit from more <laughs> editing and, and constructive criticism. That's how you ultimately become a better writer. So I have no doubt you'll, Absolutely. you'll excel in that program, but any final parting thoughts for my listeners, you want to direct them to any of your links and your work at young voices. Yeah. Uh, you guys should check out my real clear energy piece on the Tongass national forest. Um, I'm pulling up the link now. It's called Biden's Environmental Virtue Signaling Helps No One. And I really stand by that. And I think a lot of this push towards um, push towards renewable energies at the expense of oil and gas, it's, you know, it, it's not helping anybody. It's certainly not helping Alaskans. Uh, we are some of the people most affected by this. Um, yeah, so, so please read that. Um, It was pretty well researched. It was my first piece for Young Voices. Um, So you can check out some of my other pieces on elections. Um, Yeah, yeah, please, please do. Thank you. I will link to that, of course, in the show notes. And Sarah, where can people connect with you on social media? Uh, Go find me on Twitter at um, Sarah Montalbano, and the O is zero. yeah, that that's where you could find me best. I also have a Facebook, but that's that's mine. So <laughs> if you friend me, I will probably be like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're always happy to send followers to our guest way. And we will be sure to include all your social media links, your links to Young Voices. And are you looking forward to being a regional leader? We've had a lot of exciting stuff. So I'm really excited to see who we have through the program. Maybe some listeners of mine have applied for the program. But are you excited to see what we kind of do going forward with Young Voices and our regional leaders program? Absolutely. I'm super excited because I think we have a huge, I'm in the Northwest, by the way. Um, and so that means we have a lot of good opportunities to talk about these environmental issues and um, national parks. This is just such a great place for it. So I, I really hope I get some contributors that want to comment on these things. Um, and you'll probably see me commenting more about it too. Same here. I have that same desire to see that as well. It's kind of harder in the Northeast because there are it's more urban, so you don't really see an emphasis on it. But I think I'll get a few applicants who may have some thoughts on that. That's my hope as well in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. So Sarah, it was so great to chat with you. I know we're going to be in touch throughout your Bartley Fellowship. And hopefully I'll get to see you again sometime later this year if we do any more regional leader uh, programming type events and things of that sort. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and kind of your expertise with Alaska. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to us on your preferred podcast player. We recommend Apple Podcasts, where over 60% of our listenership hails from. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, which don't really populate, but follow us on social media to make sure you never miss a beat or a guest announcement. You can also find us on CFAC's website, under District of Conservation, under my profile, Gabriella Hoffman, to catch up on all different past episodes there. If you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever podcasts are played. Share the links, leave your reviews, and tell your friends about the show. Thanks for listening today. Stay tuned for more District of Conservation episodes.